From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. BC now has the three-year action plan, and that is in place to deliver its health care system a better an improved healthcare system by 2026. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Barinder Narang, family physician, also Global News and CKNW medical contributor. Thank you so much, Dr. Narang, for being with us. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? I'm well, thanks. We often hear about funding announcements. This is obviously a lot of money to be given to the provinces and territories. BC, the first one to officially sign on. What is your reaction to this idea of of this money being used and a three-year plan to make improvements? Well, I think the fact that... um BC is the first province to sign one of these deals as a, with a federal health transfer indicates, uh, you know, the situation that we're in. Um, I like that there is, you know, uh, a timeline attached to it with some tangible outcomes. And obviously the numbers are huge. Um, so I, you know, I want to be optimistic about it. But, you know, I think practically we know that we're struggling and I hope that we don't take too long to see how that translates into meaningful action for patients that are getting quite disenfranchised with uh, the level of care that they've been receiving. The the release that was put out in the announcement, there's a lot of information. There are a lot of words in this release, and it talks about things like developing an an innovative model of care when it comes to acute care sites, uh, enhancing access to mental health, supporting efforts led by First Nations Health Authority. They all seem like good goals, but they don't seem like things that will make any kind of big difference in the short term. No, and I think that that's... um there is recognition um, that short-term goals um, have not been achievable because of big issues that have you know just gotten worse over the last few years. <clears throat> and so um, the short-term investments, I think, that we've seen in primary care definitely helped over the last year in getting people attached. I think that, you know, it's a work in progress, but we know that that has then um, contributed to um, uh, problems in the hospital setting and emergency um, as people are shifting back towards primary care. So I think what we're recognizing is that there's not enough health um, human resources within the system when you're looking at doctors, nurses, or other people. So, you know, shifting people um, from one place to another isn't uh, is only going to provide short-term fixes. What this is looking at, okay, what is, how do we look at recruitment efforts? I think there was another um, announcement today on, <clears throat> you know, how certification of foreign trained graduates across different sectors, um, including healthcare. Uh, we've heard recently that they're looking at physician assistant recruitment. Um, and we're looking here at um, an emphasis on team. And I think that that's important because um, if we're relying like, you know, me, I can only speak on primary care, but if we're looking at family doctors um, and the different things we can do, we know that there aren't enough of us to fill the roles that we can do. So we do need to look at how we're using um, teams strategically, including nurses, nurse practitioners, licensed practitioner nurses, physician assistants. And we're looking at environments that can cultivate um, teams supporting patients with uh, uh, while people are working to their scope uh, of their training. 
Right. And and do you think we're doing enough and to, to change or to innovate when, when we look at healthcare and it is very expensive, the amount of money that we put into healthcare uh, and, and to look at the outcomes. Uh, I mean, it's not difficult to see there are other countries that get better outcomes uh, without perhaps spending as much money. So just throwing money at this isn't going to make it better, isn't going to fix all of the problems. But do you think we're doing enough to innovate and to, to address those concerns and to address things and make those changes? So the term innovation is 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 interesting because I think there's an intent for innovation, but I think that um, there have, and this is speaking from my experience as um, being um, the board chair for Burnaby Division's family practice for the last few years where we are looking at, you know, innovative models of primary care is that there have been challenges in the government allowing innovation to happen um, because there, uh, whenever there's funding that comes through, there's control, and when there's control, that means there's, uh, you know, extra le- levels of management, extra levels of reporting that won't necessarily translate to meaningful patient outcomes. And so, I think part of this is like, how do we balance innovation with accountability, with autonomy of providers who are highly skilled to be able to do their jobs well? And I think innovation at the cost of clinical sense and clinical reasoning um, is not is not going to help. So one of the things and the other thing I look at within innovation is you look at one of the uh, announcements part of this is increasing the percentage of people in the province who have access to their own health record, uh, sorry, electronic health information to 75% to help, you know, empower patients over the health, very reasonable goal, I think 75% is a high target, but you know, Let's see what we can do. And also increasing the percentage of family health service providers that can securely share patient information to 50%. So I think this is a huge part of um, innovation in this is like, how are we using technology to empower patients? And I think one of the struggles they have is navigating the health system. And we're looking at how can we do this uh, using technology to help fill in those gaps. Now, one of the issues that still exists in BC is this very little regulation of our electronic health record systems. If you look in the primary care landscape, there are over 30 electronic health record systems that do not talk to each other, and there's no governance or regulation of them. So it's a free market with no standards. So that's just going to aid to confusion unless we get that in line. If we look at um, the hospital systems, uh, our, some of our biggest health authorities, Vancouver Coastal Health, Providence Health, and Fraser Health, are still not using the same system. And so there's a lot of investment that are going in divergent systems. And so I need to, like, for me to believe that this is possible, is I need to, I need to have... I think my patients need to have confidence that the government has a strategy on systems that will talk to each other and reduce um, the kind of data silos that exist. Otherwise, I don't know how we can effectively share information with the patients. And I didn't realize that. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I thought those numbers were interesting as well. The the 75% to have being able to access their own electronic health information being able to share patient health information, uh, bringing it up to 50%. I mean, so really only bringing it up to half of, of patients. But but it feels like, or, or from what you're saying, that that would make a big difference. Absolutely. I think when, you know, part of the work that I'm doing is on digital referrals um, for the province now, and that will help. Um, you know, one step is getting rid of fax machines, and that's one step closer because right now, like from a day-to-day perspective, a lot of the calls that my receptionist MOAs will get will be, you know, did my referral go through? 
okay, um, can you resend it again? Oh, it's still being based on facts. And then they'll be trying to track down, okay, where am I in the system? That's just one example. So at least like securely being able to transmit information, that's a huge project that we're undertaking. But um, it the 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 stress that's put on patients when they don't know where they're at within the health system, um, I think is getting worse and worse as well, because I think um, as referral patterns become more complex and what we've noticed in, 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 you know, with COVID and, you know, other respiratory illnesses. And um, there's a lot of anxiety around our health right now, uh, rightfully so, because we, it's hard to recognize where am I on like uh, the spectrum of wellness to sickness? Where do I need to go to get health care in this? And if people don't know where to go, they present to emergency. And if they get a referral, they don't know where that's going. You know, it just adds to that anxiety of I don't know where I am. I'm not being informed. I don't know why this test was done. So I think part of the information sharing is how do we help inform patients with context? Okay, this is the test that was ordered. Um, our doctors reviewed it. Um, they're not worried about this. But, you know, we have not ignored that result either. Things like that can be very empowering to patients. Okay, at least someone's looked at this and knows that I'm safe. Right. And and aren't we a bit behind on that then? Because if you go somewhere, if you go to one of the, the private <clears throat> blood labs and get blood work done, you can access your, your tests online. You can go on and look and see uh, that they're done. You can see the results are in. Uh, I mean, it, it does seem like another area. That's not only in private. Sorry, Jill. Oh, okay. That's not only in private, though. That happens within Life Labs as well. And actually, like one of the things that they are doing, I, I, I do see what you're saying, though. And I know that like some of the uh, private imaging places for sure that that happens. But let's say Life Labs public funded labs you can make an account on there and have access to your own labs as soon as like you know within a day if it comes it'll get it'll come onto your portal at the mm -hmm. same time it'd come to me if i ordered it for you right. um but um the next part of it is they're actually integrating that you know that health gateway that was built for um the immunization passport your lab results will be becoming available on there as well too so there is kind of an effort to take these um, data out of different places and make it more accessible to patients. But it is um, it is still uh, it's still quite piecemeal and um, early in its process. And I think that's what you mean that when you say we're a bit behind. Right. Like I know down in the States, like some of their systems that they have even in Alberta, it is a lot more seamless. Um, you know, kind of your health record goes with you as you travel through the system. And I think we still have a long way to go to help with uh, to, to help navigate that. And uh, Dr. Narang, just something else you mentioned as well. Yeah. Uh, you, when you talked about family physicians and primary care, uh, are we doing things that are going to lead to more doctors, do you think, available and more British Columbians being able to get uh, a primary physician? Yeah, I think there 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 is a lot of work being done. As you alluded to earlier, these are not short-term fixes. But when I look at the things that are doing, you look at there's direct investment into primary care um, as with the new payment model that came out last year. And, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know thousands of family doctors have switched over to that. And that has enabled them to keep serving their patients. So again, that was more of a sustainability thing. But there is a recruitment aspect to that too, where there are new graduates who you know, two years ago would not have thought about going into family medicine because it was, uh, did they didn't feel that there was an investment of sustainability there. So they'd be like, I, why would I go and not be able to earn what I'm worth? And so that part is there. Then you look at education, there's expansion within UBC. There's a new SFU medical school that, um, you know, is um, uh, they've uh, we're well into their planning now. I think there's a three-year timeline on that as well. And then you look at um, the foreign credentialing. There's a practice-ready assessment programs. And I'm, you know, a new assessor for that too, which is if someone is trained to be a physician in a new 
uh, sorry, in their home country and they've come here. How can we um, look at what gaps or that need to be bridged? And maybe there don't, don't need to be, but there's a period of the observation of safety, um, making sure that uh, they're serving patients well, and then they can have a pathway to independent licensure. So I think that there are different um, um, streams happening in parallel to help with that. And I think it is a long-term investment, but I think that's absolutely what's needed because um, the population's growing, um, the healthcare needs are becoming more complex, um, and the um, uh, the, wor- the work uh, becoming harder will not be uh, uh, enticing to someone to work in it if those uh, you know there's not more foundational support in place. When, when I look at foundational support, that's what I mean, like the digital infrastructure, the funding, um, the team-based care approaches, um, so that us as family doctors do not feel we have to um, take on the burden um, by ourselves. And uh, that makes a lot of sense. Dr. Narang, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you as always. It was very good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Take care. We are keeping tabs on what is happening uh, with the attack from Hamas on Israel, the retaliation of Israel. And as you've been hearing on the news, we now know that a BC man is the second Canadian believed to have been killed in that attack on Israel. A 22-year-old Vancouver man killed by gunmen on Saturday. He was one of the many people at a music festival in Israel. He is being remembered by friends here as someone who brought joy and love to the world and And we have also got confirmation from Ben Mizrahi's family. Uh, They learned that he was missing and they have uh, been given the devastating news that he was killed during that attack. Well, Rabbi Dan Moskovitz is joining us now, senior rabbi at Temple Shalom. Rabbi, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for for covering this. Thank you. Uh, when you hear about this, and I and uh, I know that so many people were were very saddened to to hear about this. Not not only because we're talking about a young Vancouver man, but but because of the death toll and because of what's happening. Uh, how do you how do you even uh, take that in or, or or respond to that? Well, I think that. that we need to remember that these aren't just numbers, that, that every number is a person. And, and in this case in particular, this is a, a young man who's known to my family. My, my, uh, my children go to school with his younger brother. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's just so very personal. And so you take it in like it's a family member because when you know somebody and you know them uh, closely um, or just because you know them from within your community, um, it, it hits you deep in your heart. And uh, I, when you when you think about that and and go talk about the loss as well and and having that close connection, like you said, it, it it's must hit that it it is like a family member. It's like losing somebody who was very much very close to your family. Yes, and 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 I I think the important thing to remember is that this is just one story of more than a thousand. Of of uh, that he was Ben was attending a, a a music festival for peace, and he was shot uh, next to his friend. Ben was an EMT; it was a paramedic. He was tending to his friend, as we understand it, that was shot twice. When apparently Ben was shot at that time, also or shortly after, these were twenty-year-olds attending a peace concert. Think about like Coachella in the desert kind of thing. It was early in the morning after having partied all night and danced all night. And Hamas 
with paragliders, with machine guns, and pickup trucks with machine guns mounted on them, the kind of stuff we saw in Fallujah and ISIS, surrounded these four or 5,000 20-year-olds and mowed them down, mowed them down. When you describe that he was helping his friend as well and, and was tending to his friend, from everything I've read about him, which isn't a ton, but, but seeing people talk about him and remember him, uh, that sounds like that would have been absolutely in, in the chaos and absolute terror of what was happening that he was there and he was helping his friend. Yeah. So human beings try to help others in distress. Human beings, when somebody falls down, tries to pick them up. When somebody is wounded, they come to their aid. I see it happen time and again here in Vancouver. I see people rush to burning homes or to, to help people in, in auto accidents. What was missing in this moment from the, from the perpetrators of this heinous, uh, deplorable, evil act was humanity. That's what was missing. Ben was being humane and caring for, for, for a wounded friend, and those that were, that were murdering were inhumane. How do you help people even, not that you can make sense of this, it's, it's, I don't think that's possible, but when we look at the history in, in Israel, we look at the history in Gaza, and, and we look at this, this attack that took place on Saturday and everything that's happened since then, uh, I, I, you're a senior rabbi, I, I know you're used to people coming to you and asking questions, trying to make sense, trying to understand things. How do you approach what is happening and, and even attempt, or how do you answer those questions? Sadly, my people have been through this for generations. Um, you know, more people were killed in the 36 hours of, this, uh, of, these, of these attacks than at any other time in the history of the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And so we view this through the, through the lens of we have been here before and, and, and through the, the absolute abject despair that, that it is happening again. You know, we say never again and it's happening again and, and again there is silence in the world. Um, and, and, you know, I just want to say, because you kind of alluded to it, that this was not a political act. This was not politics by another means. This was what it was. This was, this was barbarism. And we need to call it out for that, just as we would in, in any other instance. And we have. Nobody celebrated al-Qaeda when they slammed into the buildings in 9-11. Nobody celebrated ISIS when they blew up things in Paris. And yet in the streets around the world, people are celebrating those that murdered my people. And, and, and. I just, it is unfathomable to me, but yet entirely familiar. Does it help at all? And and I, I understand completely what you're saying. Does it help at all that there are also people standing up to support yes. you and, and to support yes. you to, to show that? Yes, that, 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 that is so incredibly powerful. That's exactly what we need right now. Come, come out to, to our, our solidarity gathering tonight at 5 o'clock at Jack Bull Plaza. Stand with our community. Stand against barbarism and evil and, and, and terror. It doesn't mean that you agree one way or the other on the side of you know, the two-state solution and the politics of the region. Israelis don't agree on how to solve it. Palestinians don't agree on how to solve it. But we should all agree that, that this will not be tolerated in a humane world, that, that barbarism and murder and kidnapping has no place. In, in, in amongst amongst human beings and come stand with us please and let us know that, that we are human too in your eyes mm. 
Well, I, and I, I hope there there will be a lot of people, and I'm sure there will be uh, people at uh, that the plaza to to show their support. Uh, when you mentioned something too that that this wasn't a political uh, a political move, that that this is something that that history this has happened before. That that certainly. Uh, people have been the focus of attacks but do you think that there was was there there's some kind of i suppose comfort or or people thought that this uh, an attack of this level this this level of of like you said bar barbarism barbarism, barbarism yeah. that this level people thought that, that it couldn't happen there were there were warning systems in place there were there was Mossad looking at this there were other intelligence groups that people were caught off guard because of that Yes, we, 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 we believe deeply in the, in, in the Israel Defense Forces. It's a citizen's army. It, every every uh, Israeli man or woman of a certain age is, uh, is constricted to serve. Uh, obviously, some exemptions from time to time, but, but in general, the entire population serves. And so everybody is in or has been in the military, and it has, they have great faith in it. These are not strangers. These are their own children, their parents, their neighbors. And clearly, I'm not a military tactician in any way, but clearly something missed something. But that's what always happens, right? 9-11, somebody missed something. Pearl Harbor, somebody missed something. That's, you only have to, the, what do they say? The, the terrorists have to only be right once. Um, and you have to get it right every single time to prevent these kinds of acts. So, yes, it, 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 nothing is uh, n- nothing is perfect. Uh, and, and still, the, you know, the Jewish people are strong and resolute and resilient. And the IDF um, will continue to defend, uh, you know, our, our homeland and our people. What do you think needs to happen as far as international response to this? I know we, we've learned earlier today that the U.S. Secretary of State will be traveling to Israel some at some point in the next few days. What else do you think needs to happen from from other countries as, as, as we respond to this and 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 uh, and and figure out what the next steps are? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that in, in the immediate, we need empathy and we need people to, to stand with us, as I said, and to call out the barbarism, to call out those that celebrate murder, that, that celebrate evil, to, to, to say there's, you know, if we say there's no place for hate, do we really mean that if we tolerate that in Vancouver or in Canada or anywhere in the world? That, you know, the people would be out there celebrating the, the, the murdering of my people. So I, politicians and world leaders and, and, and Leaders of faith communities need to call it out and stand out and say, this is not a what about this or that or a two sides of this. Barbarism is barbarism. Terrorism is terror. Uh, of, of course, and, and I've worked for this my entire career, there, there needs to be a solution where these two people who love this land and believe it to be holy because it is to them and have, you know, have, have indigenous claims to it need to coexist on that land. The, Hamas massacring people will not solve that, of course. And that needs to be recognized. And these, these two people need to sit down and, and share the land. It's very hard to do. It's hard to get children to share a toy. It's harder for nations. Obviously, that has to be the solution. But it starts with respect for human life on both sides, for sure. It starts with respect for human life. And uh, Rabbi, again, uh, the, the gathering this evening in Vancouver, um, can you let people know again if, if people are interested in, in coming out yes. and supporting where and when is it happening? So it's at 5 o'clock at Jack Pool Plaza. Um, please don't come and yell at us. Please don't come and inflict more pain. But come and stand in support with us. Come and pray with us uh, and, 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 and hear the stories that, that are going to be shared. It, it, it won't be a long rally. 
30, 45 minutes, uh, but it's very important uh, that we're there and that you're there with us. All right. Uh, Rabbi Dan Moskowitz, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, the rising cost of just about everything is, well, people are noticing it also when it comes to things like Halloween. Global News caught up with a local couple who said they would normally welcome thousands of children to their home each year. They look forward to it, handing out candy to the kids that show up in costumes. But they're now estimating they're going to be spending about $1,000. And that's just for the candy for all of their trick-or-treaters and saying if it goes up much higher, how are they supposed to deal with this? This is an added cost in addition to everything else. Well, joining us now to talk a bit more about inflation, where people are seeing it the hardest, is Rabina Ahmed-Hak, a personal finance expert, also the host of For What It's Worth, right here on CKNW, Saturday at 9, Sunday at 5 a.m. Rabina, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this seems, I, I think, because of the, the timeliness of it, the Halloween candy is all in stores. Uh, people at first were kind of anecdotally talking about the fact that it seemed more expensive, but clearly it is a, a much bigger budget item. And how do things like this, uh, what kind of an impact do they have when, when suddenly people look at this and a tradition that they maybe have done every year and suddenly the cost is just so much higher? I mean, the impact is unfortunately on the kids. Uh, They can't afford maybe to give out candy. They can't afford maybe to put on the same decorations, which really add to that community feel, that neighborhood feel. You know, Halloween is a great time for us as parents uh, to get out and sort of just talk to the people in our street. And so if if a door is dark because they can't afford to give out candy, that's just one less connection that we're able to make. But I think a lot of families... Especially when, you know, when you think about moving into a neighborhood, you think, okay, I want to move into a neighborhood with a lot of kids. So my friends have, you know, people to play with around them. Uh, The more kids you have, the more expensive it's going to get. And I've noticed as well that that same box of, you know, mini chocolates is now three times of what it was last year. And so a lot of people will be a little bit more careful when they're giving out those handfuls of candy. Right. And, and, and especially when you're looking at Halloween candy, too, because, I mean, you're already dealing with small mini chocolate bars and mini things. They, they can't really get all that much smaller. Yeah. I mean, and giving out one or two always feels a little bit like it feels like you want to give kids more. You know, I, I remember in the past, like we'd give out handfuls of candy each time a kid was at the door. But that just seems economically un, uh, unreasonable right now because of the cost of everything going up. Halloween, you know, even decorations are much more expensive than they were uh, years ago. Um, You know, the best thing I can tell people is that, you know, from now, really start stockpiling your Halloween decorations. So saving stuff from this year for next year. Don't just bin it because oftentimes it can be reused. But for today, buying, you know, if you're buying everything brand new right now, buying all the candy, I mean, you could be running into hundreds of dollars on one night uh, for trick-or-treating. Do you think we're going to see then more people either really dial it back a lot or shut the lights off? And uh, I mean, not everybody, a lot of people would not be in the scenario where they're in a, in a position or even wanting to shell out hundreds of dollars for candy, especially when we look at everything else that's costing more as well. Yeah, you know, Halloween, despite everything, is a hard sell for a lot of people. Um, People who may not have kids, they may not want to be, you know, going to the door every couple of minutes to give out candy to children because they don't have kids coming home bringing candy, so they don't feel that sort of 
that feeling when someone comes back and then counts the candy in front of them. They don't get that experience whatsoever. Um, there may be uh, people who are have uh, have uh, uh, physical uh, abilities where they, they, they can't get to the doors quickly. So those people may immediately, because of the cost, say, you know, not only is this putting me out and making me feel uncomfortable, but it's also costing me a lot of money. And those those who do decide uh, to, to give candy out at the door, I definitely think they're going to be a little bit more careful. I think gone are the days are full of full chocolate bars going into kids' bags, which I remember was a thing for a while. But that's just too expensive for so many families to do. Yeah, but you always knew the one house that was giving out the full candy bars and making sure that you wanted to, to go. You're right, though. I, I'm not sure that that house exists anymore. Uh, how do you... Uh, advise people or, or, or what advice do you have for people then? Like you said, it's a hard sell. It's something that people really like to take part in. But at the same time, we saw food banks that saw unprecedented need this la- this past Thanksgiving. We've seen interest rates going up. How do you kind of help people get through that? You want to do all of these things, but it is almost impossible to make the money stretch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you are someone who's visiting a food bank to just get food for your family. I don't think that you should feel obligated in any way to participate in a giving out Halloween candy because that's money that uh, is taking away from other things that you need uh, for, for your household budget. If you can't afford to do something, I say scale it back. Don't have to cut it right out. Uh, you know, don't have to give out as much candy. And there's nothing wrong with when the candy's done to turn the lights off. Uh, you know, you may be, you may have enough candy to get you to 7:30, and then after that, you might just have to turn the lights off, which is an unfortunate thing. But at least you got to participate. And this is especially true for for parents who have young kids who also want to feel like they're giving as much as they're receiving. Their kids are receiving. If you can't afford to do so, maybe visit a different neighborhood. Uh, you know, take uh, combine with another family so that you can split the cost of giving up the candies but the work of giving up the candy as well and that not feel as guilty that the doorbell is ringing every few minutes uh, with trick-or-treaters that may just be some practical advice that you could just use to get through you know halloween evening i've seen uh, people too in neighborhoods and i think this is in a lot of neighborhoods where there are a lot of kids in that they kind of pool the resources uh, i know uh, good friends of mine live in a neighborhood where it's it's this established halloween alley and instead of going door to door everybody is filtered to this alley that gets decorated and there are displays and that's where people will come and hand out candy but you kind of get uh, into the the mix of it so it's not as though you're standing there awkwardly maybe only giving to two pieces of candy. It's this more kind of party celebratory type theme. I'm guessing maybe more people will be doing something like that. Oh, absolutely. I think the pandemic definitely made us more resourceful, bringing us together. We got out of our houses and started finding ways to meet with our neighbors, you know, social distancing across porches. So I think that that uh, spirit hopefully will continue. I know that the first Halloween after when we were allowed to trick or treat after the pandemic, that a lot of place, a lot of people didn't hand out candy because they were worried about health and safety, not necessarily about money at that time. I'm sure money was also a factor, but at that time, it really was health and safety that more people were concerned about. Um, and I think that, you know, if you can afford to do so, do it. If you've got something happening in your neighborhood, it's always good to get involved with local Facebook parent sites. Or if you know a parent that is particularly active in the community, see if there's a WhatsApp group that you could join. Those are places you can easily find out what's going on in your neighborhood. And maybe participate in Halloween that way. Save a little bit of money, but still have all the fun that comes with, uh, with Halloween. And uh, Halloween later this month, uh, as people know, it kind of gets into the the holiday festivities and it can be a very expensive time for people. How important is it that people budget and really keep track of what they're spending on things? 
I think this year more than ever, uh, interest rates being as high as they are, a lot of people are struggling just to make their mortgage payments, just to pay their rent. Uh, The best advice I can give anybody is to start shopping early. So if you always make, you know, typical meal on Christmas Day, start now looking for things that you could be put on the shelf for a few months or put put into the freezer so you're getting that best deal. Um, Start making that list now of who you're going to buy for. And then maybe have a conversation in your family of how you can bring those costs down. So those typical things that we do, we do the Secret Santa or the Kris Kringle, that's definitely going to bring your costs down. Managing your kids' expectations, because I think as parents, we often spend a lot on our children to make the magic of Christmas. So maybe managing their expectations this year of what they, you know, they will be receiving so that they're, that, that you don't feel the pressure to spend as much money. I think a lot of it we put on ourselves. Oh, if I don't spend this much or do this much, it's not going to be magical. I think if we have, uh, you know, a good clear plan of how we're going to stay on budget, that we can still make it amazing and not go over budget and have that, you know, that typical holiday financial hangover that so many people get in January with those huge credit card bills. It is a uh, good advice uh, indeed. Uh, Rabina, do you think, to, are you hearing more from people this year just as things uh, seem to be, everything is more expensive, even though we did see some some recent reports that some grocery items are coming down a bit, so a bit of a reprieve when it comes to rent in Vancouver, although it's still extremely expensive. Are, are people just at that that breaking point or how are people dealing with this? I mean, there are survey after survey showing that financial stress is going up among Canadians, especially in big cities like Vancouver, where the cost of living has remained higher than the rest of the country, uh, that more people are living paycheck to paycheck. So every single dollar is going towards paying the essentials like rent and food, and there's nothing left over for saving or for extracurriculars or for going out for dinner. All those things have to be put on hold until people's financial situation improves or maybe interest rates come down, those debts get a little bit easier to manage. And so, it, you know, when things, uh, Thanksgiving, which we just had, kicks off a very expensive time of the year. So you have Thanksgiving, you have Halloween, you have the holidays, you have New Year's Eve, right? Mm-hmm. So all of these things just accommodate into a very expensive three months. And so if you can start planning now, um, you know, my best tip is November 1st, if you can, go and buy those Halloween Uh, uh, decorations on clearance, which will be much cheaper than buying them brand new next year. So just hold on to them for, you know, whatever, how many days, 300 days until you got to decorate again. Um, That I, you know, that's good advice always, but that's pre-planning to the max. But even for Christmas, which is coming up, start that planning now and start managing those expectations now uh, so that you don't go over budget because everybody is, is stretched so thin right now. Good advice. Rabina ahmed Hawk. thank you so much. It was great to talk with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.